You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a weekly program bringing you news and opinion pieces from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded on the 7th of April for the listening week that begins the 8th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. Opening this week with some current events from TheRoot.com. This first is written by Jessica Washington. What happened in Tennessee is scarier than the expulsion of two lawmakers. VP Kamala Harris decided to urgently fly to Nashville to meet with expelled black Tennessee lawmakers. This was published on the 7th. Vice President Kamala Harris rushed to Nashville, Tennessee for an emergency meeting with representatives Justin J. Pearson and Justin Jones. The urgency is warranted. In an unprecedented move, Tennessee lawmakers voted to expel the two black lawmakers from the state house, effectively disenfranchising tens of thousands of Tennessee voters. However, the reason for the meeting goes a lot deeper than just one state house. The Root spoke with Ohio State University professor Hassan Kwame Jeffries, who warned that Republicans are likely to use Tennessee as a playbook to disenfranchise black Americans across the country. What does this mean for black people in Tennessee? Jeffries says that as disturbing as the decision to remove these democratically elected lawmakers from the state house is, this isn't coming entirely out of left field. I was shocked but not surprised, Jeffries told The Root, who teaches race and history. Because of the trajectory of GOP politics over the last decade, he goes on, and knowing the history in places like Tennessee dating back to the Reconstruction era. During the Reconstruction era, white supremacist Democrats would use similar tactics to expel black lawmakers who had briefly gained political power after the Civil War, Jeffries explained. Today, GOP lawmakers have typically used more subtle ways, like gerrymandering, to disenfranchise black Americans and other marginalized groups, he says. It's worth noting that Pearson's district is 31% black and Jones's district is 61% black, which means that the decision disproportionately disenfranchised black voters. It's not like African Americans haven't been effectively disenfranchised, said Jeffries, the difference is they're taking it to the next level and saying we're not even going to pretend as though you have a voice, right? We're just going to completely say you do not have one and we do not care. Vice President Kamala Harris travels to Tennessee. Harris has also taken note of the severity of what happened in Tennessee. Harris has planned an urgent visit to Nashville today to meet with the expelled lawmakers. Harris tweeted ahead of her visit, Six people, including three children, were killed last week in a school shooting in Nashville. How did Republican lawmakers in Tennessee respond? By expelling their colleagues who stood with Tennesseans and said enough is enough. This is undemocratic and dangerous. 
A White House official who spoke to USA Today said that Harris was going to support the thousands of young voters who spoke out against gun violence. She is also expected to renew calls to ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Republicans are likely to use the Tennessee playbook. The obvious next concern is whether other Republican-led state legislatures will take note of what happened in Tennessee. According to Jeffries, we're justified in being worried. He said, I can guarantee you that we will see something similar in similar places going forward. That is a bad precedent. Whether it's anti-democratic measures to ban women's rights, decrease voting rights, or censor what can be taught in schools, when one red state does it, the others will follow, said Jeffries. He also noted that the laws in Tennessee are not unique, and we could see this being done on a national scale. Don't be surprised if we see this when you have either black legislators or progressive legislators trying to amplify their voices, he said. In one way or another, rules will be used to silence them. Next, still reading from TheRoot.com, written by Kaylin Womack, posted on the 7th. Not all black folks are fully behind reparations. The president of NAACP San Francisco urged the city to reevaluate its plan to pay black residents $5 million in reparations. California is spearheading the initiative to pay back black residents money to compensate for the generational and systemic impact of slavery. With billions of dollars being considered in payouts, some critics within the black community have shown resistance to putting checks directly in our hands. California's reparations task force is being pressured to consider a compensation estimate of over 80 billion dollars, addressing the concerns of housing discrimination, police brutality from Nixon's war on drugs, per AP News. San Francisco's board recently recommended $5 million payouts to every city resident in addition to increased income and debt forgiveness. Here's why some people disagree with the solution to slavery's impact on generational wealth. Oh, pardon me, that slight error there that reads, here's why some people disagree that this is the solution to slavery's impact on generational wealth. Critics consider the cons. Reverend Amos Brown, president of San Francisco's NAACP chapter, cast doubt on the likelihood legislators would even approve the city's proposition of $5 million in payouts. He also disagreed with the city's plan to put the money directly in the hands of the people without a plan of payout installments, according to NBC Bay Area. The San Francisco NAACP released a statement suggesting the funds be allocated toward education, health care, and cultural centers to invest into the city's black community instead. Prioritizing Financial Literacy Black people make up just over 13% of the U.S. population, but have risen as the second largest consumer group in the country, according to Forbes magazine. McKinsey & Company partner Shelley Stewart estimated black consumers spend around $900 billion a year 
and predicts that number to grow to $1.7 trillion by 2030. This is why Walter Davis, former Certus Bank executive, told The Root while he believes reparations can help close the racial wealth gap, it may not be effective if the recipients haven't been exposed to wealth management strategies. People spend a lot of money, and normally it's a lot of people who don't understand that saving and investment is important, said Davis. If someone's going to get a big check, a lottery check, a reparations check, there needs to be some type of effort to make sure that there is not just an individual but a family wealth management strategy put in place, made available for them. Research supports reparations. Critiques like these come from the westernized way of thinking, according to some experts. That is hesitant to give out money without knowing where it's going. It's the same reason they say why people may opt to buy a homeless person a meal instead of giving them a few dollars, assuming they may spend it on drugs or whatever else. In contrast, research has proven that putting funds directly in someone's hand is more effective than it is a waste, particularly among impoverished communities outside the country. Grants don't go to waste. For the most part, cash grants allow people the freedom to decide how to spend their money and on what they need most. According to a 2019 review of studies by the World Bank, there was no evidence to suggest people in low-income countries blow their payouts all on temptation goods. Instead, the rate of their consumption or cigarettes and alcohol decreased. Their review also found cash grant programs had long-term benefits, pardon me, that's long-term impacts, on education in Latin American countries, helping children attain higher grades and graduate to higher levels of schooling. On another level, payouts helped poor households from seeking money in short-term decisions, such as selling various possessions or transactional sex, according to an article by Dr. Kate Orkin from the University of Oxford's Blavatnik School of Government. In some households, studies found cash grants encouraged the youth to seek employment because they had a means to pay for transportation. There's more to reparations than a check. The headlines about millions or billions of dollars in reparations has gotten everyone in a tizzy. According to AP, San Francisco has to deliberate on over 100 recommendations for city reparations besides the $5 million dollars. These include paying incarcerated individuals wages for their labor, free wellness centers, planting trees, ridding cash bail, and adopting black studies into schools. Another hot topic, considering the successful deed transfer of the Bruce family beach, is land reclamation. Daniel Landry, Policy Subcommittee Lead for San Francisco's Reparations Board, is pushing for land to be returned to the black Californians it was stolen from, according to the Washington Free Beacon. It will take a long time for California to settle on a definite plan. Then it will still have to go through legislation. President Biden has also been pressured to sign an executive order 
to establish a federal commission to recommend proposals for reparations. The conversation will continue about how much black people deserve and what the cost of slavery's damage should be. But in between the debate, it's a milestone that these conversations are even being put to action. Next, moving to an article I've archived from the 24th of March from the New York Times. This is written by Elena Shaw. Cleaner air helps everyone. It helps black communities a lot. A new study con pardon me, quantified the benefits of pollution reduction in terms of race and class. The Environmental Protection Agency is considering new standards for the maximum amount of fine particulate matter, tiny specks about one-thirtieth in diameter of the diameter of a human hair, that can penetrate the lungs in outdoor air. A recent study examined how the benefits of stricter limits would be distributed across American society. What's new in this research? Implementing stricter limits on fine particulate matter could reduce mortality rates by up to 7% for black and low-income Americans over 65 who are already exposed to some of the dirtiest air in the United States. According to the study, led by researchers from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, there is already overwhelming evidence that people of color, and black communities in particular, are disproportionately exposed to harmful air pollutants like the fine particulate matter examined in the study, which is known as PM2.5 because, it, because pardon me, it is no more than 2.5 micrometers in diameter. The new research published Friday in the New England Journal of Medicine found that tightening the limit on fine particulate matter by 5 micrograms per cubic meter of air would result in a 4% reduction in the mortality rate for higher income white adults. The same change would result in a reduction of 6% to 7% for higher income black adults, lower income white adults, and lower income black adults. We need to look at the intersection of race and socioeconomic status to really understand how structural racism, differences in access to health care, and economic disparity play a role, said Francesca Dominici, a biostatistics professor at Harvard and the senior author on the study. Why is this important? The new research could infer, me, inform a crucial Environmental Protection Agency decision to tighten limits on fine particulate matter, including soot, which can come from construction sites, smokestacks, diesel trucks, power plants, and other industrial activity. Wildfire smoke is also a major source of particulate matter pollution. In January, the EPA proposed a draft rule that would tighten limits on fine particulate matter from the current standard of 12 micrograms per cubic meter to a level between 9 and 10 micrograms. The administration has estimated that the guidance could prevent as many as 4,200 premature deaths each year. However, some environmental justice advocates have said that the rule should strengthen the standard even more to protect the most vulnerable communities. The findings from the new research reveal that there are potentially real, meaningful differences between setting the limit at 10 micrograms versus a stricter 8. 
There are likely tens of millions of Americans who live in communities with levels of PM2.5 between 8 and 10 micrograms per cubic meter, said Joshua Opte, an associate professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of California, Berkeley, who did not work on the study, he went on. Those people could be left behind by the new standard. The new rule, which will likely be finalized later this year after a period of public comment, is a central component of the Biden administration's effort to address environmental justice. Understand the bigger picture. In a separate study last year, researchers uncovered stark disparities between white Americans and people of color across thousands of categories of pollution, including trucks, industry, agriculture, and even restaurants. A study from 2020 quantified how air pollution ignores borders. In most states, about half of the premature deaths caused by poor air quality are linked to pollutants that blow in from other states. And policies made decades ago have been shown to have long-lasting effects. A study in March last year found that urban neighborhoods that were subject to redlining, the discriminatory practice of withholding banking and other services from non-white communities in the 30s, tended to have higher levels of harmful air pollution eight decades later. End of article. Next, moving to the Atlantic. I'm going to read a, um, ex, uh, what a, pardon me, a transcript from a podcast they are publishing. This is attributed to Kelly Maria Corducci. Looking for a title here. Hmm. The title of the podcast is Holy Week. And it says here, the introduction, Collective grief can have a way of warping the historical lens. My colleague Van R. Newkirk II explains in Holy Week, a new Atlantic podcast series exploring the week of fiery uprisings that broke out across many major U.S. cities following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. I spoke with Van about what happened during that week, exactly 55 years ago and how it diverted the civil rights movement in ways that history is in danger of forgetting. This was published April 6th. Epic Defining Kelly Maria The story of the mass uprisings that immediately followed King's assassination on April 4th, 1968, isn't widely included in most Americans' civil rights history education. When did you learn about it? Van R. Newkirk II. My whole life, my father got his Ph.D. from Howard University in the 90s, and there were lots of buildings in Washington, D.C. at the time that had been burned in 1968 and weren't yet replaced. But I didn't quite understand what that week meant to America and how things changed in that year until much more recently. Kelly. What exactly happened during Holy Week 1968, and how did it challenge your understanding of the civil rights movement until that point? Van, after King was killed, there were these uprisings in over 100 cities. The week marked the biggest street unrest in America, really, between the Civil War and the George Floyd protests of 2020. You think about that type of thing usually as a kind of era or epoch-defining. 
People were coming out in grief over King's death, but also about the loss of what he symbolized, a future that lots of black Americans were really holding on to. It was kind of the last hope for a lot of people. The 1960s saw the passage of major civil rights bills that were on paper supposed to bring about certain measures of equality that lots of people had hoped for in terms of housing, education, jobs, and so on. But by and large, black Americans were still living in concentrated poverty in the ghettos. They still weren't getting jobs. They were still staggering rates of school segregation and all types of discrimination in housing and jobs. So Holy Week saw those frustrations boil over. At the same time, public opinion had been moving away from the movement for some years. King had an approval rating somewhere south of 30% in the year he was killed. Among the non-black public, he was seen as even something of a villain after he came out against the Vietnam War. So what you also saw that week was the greater part of the American public deciding firmly that it was done with the civil rights agenda. Kelly, how did that play out? And like a lot of things in politics, it was slow and then fast. Over the late 60s, there was an erosion of public support for both protest and civil rights legislation. And at least in my reading of the polls and interviews with people who were active in the movement, the assassination appears to have really accelerated that process. That spring, you also saw the 1968 primaries for president. Lyndon B. Johnson decided not to run again. On the Republican side, the people who were jockeying for the nomination were the people who would end up defining the modern party, Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, and both were running on these really robust law and order campaigns. They were pledging to build what we now know is the basis of the modern system of mass incarceration, courting disaffected white voters who used to vote Democratic and who still supported segregation or at least didn't want their communities integrated. Then the assassination kicks everything into gear. You see a strong reaction from white America against the riots. Public opinion polling shows that the vast majority of Americans disapprove of the riots and don't believe that the protests have anything to do with King or with any long-standing disenfranchisement or inequality. A common interpretation was that the protesters were kind of being bad people, and the primary solution as imagined by the majority of non-black Americans is not to implement policy measures that would address the concerns in the black ghettos but making sure that further uprising did not happen again by any means. Kelly, it sounds like the uprisings during Holy Week reframed Americans' understanding of political dissent as a kind of dangerous outlier force as opposed to a mass movement by ordinary people. Van, that's exactly how I would put it. Kelly, do you think that perception has changed at all in recent years? Then, the dominant narrative of the civil rights movement still falls short of explaining why somebody like King would have such a low approval rating in late life, 
why he was still working and believed that the majority of his work lay ahead of him, or why America reacted as it did in 68, why these clashes and divisions transpired. But I think that when you go back and look at what led up to King's death and talk to people who were alive and politically engaged at that time, which is what we did, you see that although there was a really accelerated time frame of events, they all sort of followed logically from underlying conditions. There's an ongoing erosion of support for the civil rights movement and the solidification of backlash. There's the rise of black power and black nationalism. They all happen at the same time for the same reasons. I think more and more people are developing a more sophisticated understanding of the transition from what I will call the movement era to the modern era. Hopefully, this podcast is adding to that. Once again, that is, if you have access to it, it is called Holy Week via the Atlantic. Continuing with some articles I have archived. Pardon me. Archived. This one comes from the New York Times. It was posted originally March 31st. Written by Thomas Rogers. A movie confronts Germany's other genocide. Measures of Men tells the story of the systematic massacre of Herero and Nama people in what is now Namibia. Its maker hopes the film will bring a debate about Germany's colonial guilt into the center of society. Germany is often praised for its willingness to confront the darkest moments of its history, but in recent years, activists have pointed to a blank spot in the country's culture of remembrance. Decades before the Holocaust, Germany perpetuated, pardon me, perpetrated these 20th century's first genocide. From 1904 to 1908, German colonial officials systematically killed tens of thousands of Herero and Nama people in what is now Namibia. This atrocity is little known outside academic circles, and there are a few pardon me, there are few memorials or pop cultural depictions of those events. Now, a new movie, Measures of Men, aims to change that and bring a debate about Germany's colonial guilt into the center of society. The glossy film, directed by the German filmmaker Lars Kraum, tells the story of the killings through the eyes of a German anthropologist. Aside from playing in movie theaters where it opened last week, Measures of Men had a special screening for lawmakers in Germany's parliament and was the focal point of a series of events at the Humboldt Forum, a central Berlin museum housing ethnological items. Its distributor, Studio Canal, said in a statement that it was planning to show the film in school and educational contexts. Measures of Men has also prompted a new discussion in the German media about what many see as Germany's sluggish attempts to come to terms with its colonial past. In recent years, the country has moved to return numerous artworks acquired during the colonial period, but the process of ratifying a reconciliation agreement between Namibia and Germany has stalled, and thousands of African human remains, 
transported to Germany from its colonies, remain in institutional collections. In an interview in Berlin, Kraum, 50, explained that his movie was partly inspired by the 1978 NBC miniseries Holocaust, an early fictionalized TV depiction of the Shoah, which played a key role in spreading awareness of German guilt after it was broadcast here. You have the possibility, through cinematic storytelling, to reach an audience that doesn't engage so much with history books, he said, adding that he hoped his film would be the first of many. Much in the way, Holocaust paved the way for films like Schindler's List. Measures of Men, which was filmed in Berlin and Namibia, focuses on an ambitious German ethnologist, Leonard Scheischer, who develops a fascination with an Arero woman, Gurli Jazama, after measuring her cranial features as part of his research. His fixation leads him to travel to German Southwest Africa, now Namibia, where he witnesses and eventually becomes complicit in the colonial slaughter. Crown said, it's not just a film about the genocide, but also about ethnologists who want to explore foreign cultures but destroy them. Many of the scenes were based on real events of the genocide, which took place during a conflict between Germans and Africans known as the Herero and Nama War. After thousands of Herero men, women, and children fled into the Omaheke Desert in 1904 to escape the fighting, German troops sealed off its edges and occupied the territory's waterholes, leading many to die of thirst. Lothar von Trotha, the governor of the colony, then issued a proclamation calling for all remaining Herero to be killed. After the Nama joined the fight against the German colonizers, they were also targeted, and colonial officials set up concentration camps, ostensibly to provide labor for German-owned businesses, in which hundreds of prisoners died. The film depicts real facilities in one such camp, in which the decapitated heads of Herrero and Nama were boiled and cleaned for export to German ethnological institutions. Thousands of skulls of unclear origin remain in German collections to this day. Kraum long wrestled with how to tell the story as a European filmmaker and said he had decided to depict it from a German perspective for fear that centering it on African protagonists would represent a form of cultural appropriation. At one point in the development, he hoped to structure it similarly to Hollywood films about the Vietnam War, such as Platoon and Apocalypse Now, that center their plots on conflicts between good and bad American soldiers. But there were actually no good Germans, said Crown. Jasama, an acclaimed Namibian actress who plays Kezia Kambazemba, the film's lead female role, learned German to play her part. In preparation for the role, she spoke to relatives about her family's connection to the genocide and discovered that her great-grandmother had been conceived in a German-run concentration camp. My ancestors need to be at peace, she said in an interview. That's why I became a part of this story. 
Shasama said that though the film had largely been made to spur discussion in Germany, it had also been a talking point in Namibia where the events of the genocide had often been passed down via family members. She said, a lot of people are grateful, recalling that one audience member had shared appreciation that now there is a visual representation of what happened versus just it being told orally. The reaction in Germany has been more mixed. Writing in the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung newspaper, the critic Bert Rembandl wrote that the film focused too much on German self-understanding while pushing African perspectives to the edge. A, pardon me, a writer in the Süddeutsche Zeitung argued that the film depicts too little of the genocide to transmit the scope of the killing, and it does not do justice to the horror. Henning Melber, a political scientist who has written extensively about German colonialism, said that criticism of the film shouldn't distract from its potential role in remedying what he described as Germany's colonial amnesia. He said that the film triggers a debate in a wider German public in a way that none of us academics can achieve. Kraum emphasized that although Measures of Men was meant to appeal to a mass audience, it was an explicitly political film, and that its rollout was partly engineered to spur a discussion. He hoped the screening for lawmakers would drive politicians to work harder at compensating the Herero and Nama. He added, although Namibian and German authorities agreed in 2021 on the terms of a reconciliation agreement, including around $1.1 billion in aid that Germany would pay over the next 30 years, the process has since come under fire from groups representing victims' descendants who argue that amount is too low and say they were unfairly left out of the negotiation process. The Namibian government has since backtracked on plans to ratify the agreement, and the German authorities have resisted calls by the Namibians to reopen talks. Crown said Germany's president, Frank Walter Steinmeier, should travel to Namibia and officially apologize for the genocide, and that all human remains still held in Germany should be returned. He said, Europe has done far too little to reconcile with victims. I think cinema allows us to awaken emotions and implant images that can let you see things differently. But this is only the beginning of the discussion. Well, this one was posted April 5th from the Washington Post opinion column by Angel Adams Parham and Annika Anika Prather, forgive my mispronunciation, possible. As black educators, we endorse classical studies. And the introduction says, Angel Adams Parham is a sociology professor and senior fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture at the University of Virginia. Anika Prather is director of High Quality Curriculum and Instruction at the Johns Hopkins Institute for Education Policy. They are the authors of The Black Intellectual Tradition, Reading Freedom in Classical Literature. The growth in K-12, K-12 classical schools has ignited a frenzy of concern on the political left 
over race, politics, and curriculum. Classical education teaches the liberal arts and natural sciences through ancient methods of intellectual engagement, inquiry, and dialogue. In contrast to the contemporary utilitarian focus on imparting practical information and skills. Opponents seem to fear that a handful of extremists on the right are promoting the study of a Eurocentric Western canon as the salvation of a culturally besieged West struggling to hold back the leftist barbarians at the gate. In this increasingly polarized debate, both sides reveal an astonishing lack of historical understanding combined with a lamentable lack of imagination. Have the classics and classical education at times been used to exclude and oppress? They certainly have. Is exclusion and oppression innate to an education steeped in the history and literature of the Mediterranean crossroads? Certainly not. As African-American educators, we recognize the vapidity of this debate, which recalls the sometime description of black people who are Christians as dupes of the white man's religion. Has Christianity been identified with Western European colonizers generally described as white? Absolutely. Is Christianity itself an inherently white European religion? Not unless the Middle East and Northern and Eastern Africa, seed beds of the faith, have suddenly been recategorized as part of Europe without our notice. In a way quite similar to the foundations of Christianity, the principles of classical antiquity emerged, flourished, and were shared around the Mediterranean Sea, the crossroads of Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. The impressive exchange of ideas continued across the barriers of time, religion, geography, and culture. About 2,500 years ago, Herodotus reflected the richness of this exchange in his histories, which imparted real and fantastical stories from what we now call the Iberian Peninsula to India, from Central Europe to Ethiopia, and beyond. From the 8th to the 13th centuries, scholars at Baghdad's Grand Library of Antiquity, known as the House of Wisdom, translated into Arabic the masterworks of Greek philosophy and mathematics. These included Aristotle's treatises discussing democracy and the relation between living a virtuous life and happiness, as well as what it means to be alive. Jewish and Christian scholars made pilgrimages to the library throughout its existence, eager to read classical texts that had been lost to the West, the fragile papyrus on which they were copied being vulnerable to war and natural disaster. Their discoveries reinvigorated Western learning. The 13th century Italian Fibonacci returned from his education in North Africa armed with Hindu-Arabic numerals, liberating his fellow mathematicians in future generations from the limitations of Roman numerals and counting boards. In the 1100s, Islamic philosopher and scientist Ibn Rushd, pardon me, Rushd or Averos, wrote some of the most influential commentaries on Ar 
pardon me, Aristotle's works on rhetoric, logical reasoning, science, literature, and ethics, the Italian theologian Thomas Aquinas read and responded to Averroes with great respect, outlining the points on which their thoughts diverged. Rooted in the fullness of this history, classical education invites us and our students to learn from this rich crossroads and to enter into a millennium-long conversation about what it means to be human, the essence of freedom, how to live well, and what constitutes a good society. Black American writers have eagerly participated in this conversation. Phyllis Wheatley was a poet of the Revolutionary War era who, despite her status as an enslaved person, was nourished on the classics. When she mailed one of her poems to George Washington, the general shared it with a friend in a letter praising Wheatley's, quote, great poetical genius, and affirming it as worthy of publication. Nineteenth-century abolitionist leader Frederick Douglass memorized the speeches of Cicero in the hope that powerful oratory of the sort that once swayed the Roman Senate and courts would move America's own leadership toward needed change. NAACP co-founder W.E.B. Du Bois elegantly used the Roman poet Ovid's tale of fleet-footed Atalanta, who lost a race because she turned her attention to some distracting golden apples, to illustrate why black men and women should never settle for a narrow education that limits our worldview. Huey Newton, a founder of the Black Panther Party in 1966, had improved his reading by studying Plato's Republic and wrote in Revolutionary Suicide that he shared insights from Plato's Allegory of the Cave with other black men on his block. The great educator Marva Collins, who founded Westside Preparatory School in 1975 for underserved families in Chicago, taught her students from the classics, opening their minds to understand not just their own stories, but the universal human story. Collins encouraged the children to look beyond their difficult circumstances, saying, you must become citizens of the world like Socrates. We see how the students we teach today combine the challenges and riches of their own lives with insights from classic literature. So, down with classics and classical education? Not while we have the chance to invite our students to inhabit its crossroads and engage as interlocutors, interlocutors pardon me, in its conversations with Plato, Averroes, Fibonacci, Wheatley, and many more. These are our real teachers, and we submit that we all have much to learn from them. And a little bit along the same lines, next article, possibly our last for the week, is an in-depth one from The Atlantic, which was originally published on March 10th. All of Shakespeare's plays are about race. A new book argues that the playwright's work was central to defining whiteness as a racial category, one that has persisted ever since. This is written by Daniel Pollock-Pelsner. Pop quiz. Which of the following Shakespeare works is about race? A. Hamlet. B. Othello. C. Romeo and Juliet. D. The Sonnets. If you answered B, you're not alone. 
Many of us have been taught that Othello is Shakespeare's primary race play, because, of course, it focuses on a black character. You might also recall that Shakespeare wrote a few other plays with non-white characters, the Prince of Morocco in The Merchant of Venice, a suitor to the heiress Portia who begs her, mislike me not for my complexion, or Cleopatra, the African queen whom Roman soldiers blame for seducing their general Antony with her tawny front, or Aaron the Moor in Titus Andronicus, a schemer alternately villainous and compassionate who asks, is black so base a hue? Or even Caliban, the island native in The Tempest, whom Prospero, Prospero his enslaver, calls this thing of darkness. These works compose the lineup typically billed as Shakespeare's race plays. A limitation of that understanding, however, is that it assumes that race applies only when people of color are present. Such a view is definitively rejected in the revelatory new essay collection titled White People in Shakespeare. It's cannily edited by author L. Little, Jr., a UCLA professor and notable scholar of Shakespeare and race, and even the title is a doozy. White people in Shakespeare? Isn't that, well, redundant? That reaction in part, pardon me, is part of Little's and his fellow essayists' point. White people have for so long been taken as the universal norm in the Western canon that to name them as white is to engage in critical race study. White people posits that Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, and the sonnets are just as much about race as Othello, because they're all involved in defining whiteness. Shakespeare's work, the collection argues, was central to the construction of whiteness as a racial category during the Renaissance, and white people in turn have used Shakespeare to regulate social hierarchies ever since. This is not, to be clear, a Burke Pardon me, a book that tie. Pardon me again. Start over. This is not, to be clear, a book that tries to demonize Shakespeare or vilify folks who relish him. The complexity and power of his dramatic verse are given in these essays. The collection contends, though, that what's beautiful in Shakespeare, or what Shakespeare's speakers take as beautiful, is often cast in racial terms. A striking example comes in the first essay of white people by the late Imtiaz Habib, a founding scholar of race in early modern England. He takes up the opening line of Shakespeare's sonnet number one, which implores a handsome young man to reproduce, quoting, From fairest creatures we desire increase. The key word here is fairest. In Shakespeare's day, fair could mean physically attractive or morally just. It could also refer to complexion. More influential, it could be used to link attractiveness and justness to whiteness. When the Duke of Venice approaches, pardon me, when the Duke of Venice approves of Othello's virtue, for instance, he calls him far more fair than black. Parentheses. Is it any coincidence that the answer to the fairy tale question who is the fairest of them all, is Snow White. Scholar Kim F. Hall, another contributor to white people, 
demonstrated the racial valence of FAIR almost three decades ago in her field-defining study, Things of Darkness, a dynamic work whose implications are still contested. Although I'm in Hall's camp, not all Shakespeare scholars agree with her ideas. As a result, it's still common for people to read passages such as those that open Sonnet Number 1 without acknowledging that a paraphrase could basically be this. We want the whitest people to have more babies. Habib calls Sonnet 1 opening a declaration of the desirable eugenic privilege of white breeding, which is the kind of bracing take, both unsettling and compelling, that this collection offers at every turn. This method of race scholarship often attracts the charge of anachronism, that it's imposing contemporary categories on the past. That objection tends to not bother me. Every era generates its interpretive questions from its own concerns, and an anti-racist approach to Shakespeare is long overdue. On historical grounds, though, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that even if people in the 16th and 17th centuries didn't use racial categories in quite the same ways we might, they were wrestling with the construction of social hierarchies based on emerging categories of race that went on to shape our world. In fact, one of the few, pardon me, one of the chief interests of white people is how fluid and vexed the idea of whiteness as both a racial and an aesthetic category, often was as it developed from the medieval to the early modern period. Little even proposes that in 1613, the first documented occurrence of the phrase white people in a pageant scripted by Shakespeare's contemporary Thomas Middleton would have seemed an oxymoron. Whiteness was the, pro pardon me, the property of the elite, who could boast pure Christian souls, the illumination of humanist learning, and cosmetically lightened faces, whereas people, the collective term for the common throng who had to labor for a living, couldn't claim the appearance, let alone the power, of being white. White people, little writes, was not a thing. Yet already during that time, the theater was staging performances, deploying cosmetics, costumes, prosthetics, and props that helped redefine the boundaries of whiteness. Those boundaries could be national and geographical, as in the case of Shakespeare's history plays, or historical and civic, as in his Roman plays, or even romantic, as in his courtship plays. Romeo, for instance, spends much of his first few scenes trying to determine if there is anyone fairer than my love. Degrees of whiteness in Verona, as the scholar Kyle Grady writes in White People, are a recurring concern. The most provocative essay to show whiteness under negotiation comes from Ian Smith in Antonio's White Penis, Category Trading in The Merchant of Venice. The provocation doesn't come from naming the merchant's penis. That's not a new move for scholars who have wondered whether the bond he signs with Shylock, a Jewish moneylender, in which he promises that if he fails to repay the loan, Shylock can cut off a pound of Antonio's flesh. Quote, quote, in what part of your body pleaseth me? 
might involve a kind of circumcision or castration. Smith's ingenuity is noticing the precise terms of the bond, an equal pound of your fair flesh. In Smith's reading, Antonio's whiteness is what Shylock covets as a Jew who, though not dark-skinned, is nevertheless excluded from the privileges that fair Christian Venetians enjoy. Is this too tenditious a reading? Not to my ear. Sure, some scholars might want to prioritize a religious interpretation over a racial one. But Smith is simply adding a layer of analysis, hidden in plain sight, that shows how, in Shakespeare's imagination, race and religion, like sex and money or flesh and blood, were so often intertwined. Smith's new volume, Black Shakespeare, includes another innovative argument that Hamlet's reluctance to take revenge against his uncle for murdering his father stems from his fear that Avengers are marked as a type of, quote, violent, murderous black man. If Hamlet committed revenge, he'd no longer be quite as white. That might seem a stretch until you look at the language that describes an avenging figure Hamlet recalls from the Trojan War, quoting, He's he whose sable arms, black as his purpose, did the night resemble, when he lay couched in the ominous horse, hath now this dread and black complexion smeared, with heraldry more dismal. Whenever I started to feel skeptical, what race really, def pardon me, was race really the defining issue for Hamlet more than any other psychological or social explanation scholars have proposed? A passage like this one made the theory hard to dismiss. By joining established scholars such as Smith, Hall, and Habib with emerging voices, White People heralds a breakthrough for a rising cohort of Shakespeare scholars, many of them people of color, whose focus on race has sometimes been excluded from the field's top journals. One of this volume's goals is to chart the history of white people controlling access to Shakespearean interpretation and, in turn, controlling access to the ideas that Shakespeare's works helped fashion. White people invoked Shakespeare to justify opposition to miscegenation, as when former President John Quincy Adams wrote in 1836 that the moral of Othello is that the intermarriage of black and white blood is a violation of the law of nature. Quotes. A century later, his descendant, jo Joseph Quincy Adams, opened the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C. with a celebration of Shakespeare as a centerpiece of a compulsory education system that had saved America from immigrants, quote, who swarmed into the land like the locust in Egypt, foreign in their background and alien in their outlook upon life, with varied racial characteristics that posed a menace to the preservation of our long-established English civilization. If in America, the melting pot of races, Adams concluded, there has been evolved a homogenous nation with a culture that is still essentially English, we must acknowledge that in the process, Shakespeare has played a major part. Focusing on these innovations, pardon me again, focusing on these invocations, however, 
risks overshadowing the ways that some people of color globally have appropriated Shakespeare for their own purposes, many of them performing and rewriting the plays to challenge colonial legacies. So it's salutary to see white people move in its second half toward creative counter-narratives. A conversation with the playwrights Keith Hamilton Cobb and Achuli Felicia King explores how they flipped Shakespeare's script in their own adaptations of Othello, discussing Cobb's American Moor and an Othello reimagining Desdemona by Toni Morrison and Rokia Traore. Hall says that it is incumbent on us to help students and audiences hear voices beyond the white noise of the Shakespeare industry. And the Shakespeare and race scholar Margot Hendricks calls on her white peers to think critically about whiteness as an implicit standard of value. If those of us who, like me, fall into that category, heed Hendricks' call, that may be the lasting contribution of white people to make it impossible to assume that whiteness is the norm, either for Shakespeare's characters or for the audiences that interpret them. That doesn't mean rejecting Shakespeare as an outmoded dead white man. On the contrary, it means reanimating him as a crucial part of a negotiation that continues to script our culture today far beyond the theater and the classroom. That brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This is the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Network for Good. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.